0: Heavenly Father, when we think about your astonishing grace, your amazing grace that you planned in eternity past to take ill deserving sinners, rebels like me, like friends here in this room, and making us your sons and daughters because of what your son, Jesus Christ, did coming to this fallen earth and living a perfect life, perfectly fulfilling your law of dying the death the punishment that we earned, he took upon himself. And then you raised him from the dead for our justification. You raised him from the dead as proof that everything he did fully satisfied all of your righteous requirements. And now ascended, he sits at your right hand. Lord, we're so thankful for your son. Thank you for giving him to us. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Your spirit who shone the light into our darkened souls so that we would see your beauty, your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your Spirit coming and indwelling us and empowering us as individual Christians, but also, Lord, as your people, your church. We would ask today that your present Spirit would show his power among us, that he would take my weakness, Lord, and use it for your glory, that each of us, Lord, would receive your word in a way that's transforming, that we would love one another in ways that cannot be explained by the ways of this world. Lord, thank you for what you've done over the years in this church of repeatedly calling members of this church to go into the dark corners of the world with the light of the gospel. Lord, sometimes it's hard to say goodbye to our friends when we see them off, and yet we know that the glory of your Son is greater than our comfort. And so we'd ask that you would do it again. Thank you for the Royers, Lord, and how you're using them to equip another generation of missionaries. Please empower Andy, as he has more students this year than he's ever had before, that you would empower him to teach well, to mark papers well. For him and Sarah, as they disciple students, Lord, that you would give them wisdom and grace and courage. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing here in our church in reaching the generations, the children, the grandchildren represented by families in this room. Lord, help us to live out our ministry of parenting and grandparenting that the coming generation would set their hope in you. And Lord, we thank you for the ministry of Heartline over the years. And Lord, you're using this ministry here in our community to save the lives of another generation of little ones, but also, Lord, to show them the gospel and tell them the gospel. Help us as a church to know how to support that ministry in a way that honors you. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing here at CCC. Thank you for the privilege, Lord, of serving with my fellow pastors. Thank you for Mark and his leadership, for Rod, his faithfulness, for Tom and his passion, for those elders in training, Lord, that uh, you would continue to sharpen them and hone them, that they could join us on our team. Lord, it's a joyful and yet a sobering responsibility to shepherd your sheep. Help us to do that with humility and love. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunities you give us as a church to reach our community and even this week with a Harvest Dinner, Lord. Help us to receive people with your grace that they would feel welcomed even at that event, that we would show them the gospel. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you might give us insight into its meaning and insight into its application. It's in your son's name, the only one who stands between us, Jesus Christ, that we come into your throne room. Amen. Please have a seat. And as you find your seat, let me ask you a question. How are people in the world, unsaved people, how are people in the world supposed to be able to identify us as true followers of Jesus Christ? Or if I could take that question and and reword it, same point. What distinguishes us, true followers of Jesus Christ, what distinguishes us from people who are are not followers of Jesus Christ? How, How would you answer that? I can think of a variety of things that might pop into our minds. Maybe things like personal holiness. Or holding fast to the truth of God's word. Or maybe a concern for the spiritually lost. Or, or, maybe a compassion on hurting people, and you know those are all good things, and those are all things that do and should mark the people of God, true followers of jesus christ but but let 's hone it in let's let 's narrow that question in a little more sharply. What did Jesus say should be the identifying mark of his true followers? What did Jesus say? should be the identifying mark. Do some of you know the answer to this from your Bibles? Love one another. Exactly. This is recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus said this. These are words from the lips of our Savior. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That was his identifying mark. This is how people in the world are going to know you're my true followers if you love one another. Now, why would Jesus say that? Why love? Why love for one another? Join me, please, in First Corinthians chapter 13. Turn, tap, First Corinthians chapter 13. Today we're going to look at what is probably the most well-known passage in the whole book of 1st Corinthians, the famous love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is both beautiful and powerful. This chapter in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, is so popular that we often hear it at weddings. Maybe at your wedding. We, we have it on plaques around our home, hanging on the wall or sitting on the mantel. 1 Corinthians 13, powerful, beautiful, But we want to see it in its context today. I know many of you were here last month when I asked this question, uh, but I I think I'd like to ask it again, because not everyone is here. What comes before 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 12, very good. What's 1 Corinthians 12 about? Spiritual gifts, thank you very much. What comes after 1 Corinthians 13? 1 Corinthians 14, all the math teachers in the room should be very encouraged. (laughs) What's 1 Corinthians 14 about? Spiritual gifts. Isn't that fascinating? The tucked right between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 is 1 Corinthians 13. He talks about spiritual gifts. He talks about spiritual gifts. And right in between, there's this chapter about love. Why would the Apostle Paul do that? Is he somehow interrupting his discourse on spiritual gifts? Or maybe is he contrasting? Maybe Paul's trying to make a contrast somehow, and and he's saying, um, maybe we should emphasize spiritual gifts. Excuse me, maybe we should emphasize love instead of spiritual gifts. I I don't think that's his point, do you? Um, Maybe he's giving love as uh, another spiritual gift. You know, some of the gift of teaching, some of the gift of service, some of the gift of love. Is he, is he dropping this in there because he's saying, well, well, here's another spiritual gift, the gift of love. I don't think that's his point either. I'll tell you what. Look at the last sentence of chapter 12. I think this is fascinating. If we back up just one breath and we see what Paul says right before this chapter, I think it will help us. Let me just read the entirety of verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12. By the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, here it is, and I will show you a still more excellent way. A still more excellent way. The Apostle Paul is still talking about spiritual gifts, but now he's going to talk about a way, a way to use gifts. A way to apply spiritual gifts in the body of Christ. So He's not somehow interrupting the flow. He's giving context. He's giving flavor. He's giving, he's giving us a whole demeanor of how we should be using our spiritual gifts. As I was preparing to feed you this passage this morning, I thought, you know what we need to talk about even before we dive into details? What is love? How long is that going to take the answer? (laughs) Well, well, I'll tell you what. Let's let's narrow it down here. Uh, What is Christian love? And in particular, what is Christian love as it is distinguished from worldly love? What is the difference between what we would call worldly love and what we call Christian love? Let's begin with worldly love. What motivates people in the world? People without Christ, your past, my past, people still without Christ, What motivates people to love another person? And please, when we talk this way, it could involve romantic involvement, romantic love, but I'm thinking more broadly than that. I'm even thinking of what we would call friend love. Um, Why do you choose certain friends? Why do you care for certain people? Why do you hang with certain people? And yes, it could include romantic love, but apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit, worldly love... What motivates people to love another person? Usually the motivation is found in the person who's being loved. I love you because of something in you. We look at someone and we say, that person has a particular value to me, has a certain worth to me. I consider that person lovely. Or if you'll allow me to use a word that I don't think gets past spell check, A lovability? You know, this person has a certain lovability. And we say things, you know, having done premarital counseling for a number of years. uh, Sometimes I'll ask a young man, you know, why do you you love this young lady? And sometimes guys will say something like, she's beautiful. Well, maybe she is. Um, So your motivation in loving her is she's beautiful. There's something in her. Or maybe someone will say something like, he's just so much fun to be with. I I just enjoy being around him. He he is so much fun. Or he is so kind. Or she is just so sweet. And so we look at the, the person being loved, and we say the reason I love that person is because that person has some worth, some loveliness, some lovability. Not only that, but if I could add to that, I think in worldly love, there's not only a motivation of the worth of the individual, the, the value, the lovability of the person loved being loved, but there's also some understanding, desire, possibly even a demand that I love you because of what you do for me, or even I love you because of what I want you to do for me or I love you because of what I expect you to do for me and I know this might sound a little bit hard but allow me to embellish take romantic relationships and you ask someone why are you drawn to this person why are you drawn to this person and this is purely illustrative why are you drawn to this person he makes me so happy He makes me so happy. I just love being around him. I just love being around her. And when marriage is on the horizon, often people, you've heard me use this illustration before, many of you, not that they would say these words, but they might as well. (laughs) He makes me so happy, I want to marry him to give him the opportunity of making me happy for the rest of his life. And and we could flip that over to the female side of it, couldn't we? That is often the reason people get romantically involved. This person makes me so happy. There's something in that person that draws out my love. Now, if you think I'm being a little bit hard here, let's go to the other end of many marriages, uh, when people are on the verge of divorce. And one of the harder things, pastorally, is sitting down with a couple who are right there on the edge. And you say, why Why do you want to divorce your wife? Why are you wanting to divorce your husband? And more than once over the years, I've heard the sad words. You can finish it with me if you care to. I'm just not happy anymore. I'm just not happy anymore. What does that mean? I married him so he could make me happy. And he's not doing a very good job. I married her so she could make me happy and she's failing. I'm just not happy anymore. I want out of this relationship. My friends, that might sound extreme, but I think that's an illustration of what I would call worldly worldly love. The worldly love is primarily based in the object love, the person being loved. I love that person because I see some lovability in that person, I love that person because of what she does for me, what I want him to do for me. I'll call that worldly love. It's horizontal. It is purely horizontal. It's this way. What what I see in you, what I want you to do for me, reciprocity. Now, let's contrast that with what I'm going to call Christian love. What prompts a Christian to love another person? Let's think about that. We love others not because that they are in some way lovable, (laughs) but we love even the unlovely. We love even the unlovable, even at great costs, because of what Christ has done for me. Now, let me ask you a question. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a recipient of his saving grace, When did God decide to set his love on you? What were you like when God decided to love you? A reprobate, enemy of God. I'm hearing biblical answers here. Those are quotes from the Bible, by the way. Uh, I heard Romans 5.11 being alluded to. While we were enemies of God. My Christian friend, when the Lord set his love on you, when he set his love on me, he didn't look at us and Look at us and say, Oh my, what a lovely person. My, what a lovable person. You know, I think she could do something for me. I think he has a lot to offer me. Oh, far from it. Take some time and read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, where the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, describes us in our BC days your BC resume, my BC resume. Are not very attractive. Where Paul says, while we were still sinners, we were still helpless, we were still ungodly, we were still enemies of God, He, Christ, died for us. He set His love on us while we were far from being lovely, when we were far from being lovable, when we had nothing to offer Him but our sin. And now Jesus Christ says, Love even as I have loved you. We love in the same pattern of Christ, but we also love others because of what Christ has done for us. Let's read 1 John chapter 4. I was going through 1 John 4, and I thought, let's just pick some of these key statements in John's letter, his first letter, 1 John 4. Um, Let me read out loud to you from 1 John 4. It says, Beloved, let us love one another for love comes from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we have come to know and to believe, or some of you are using the NIV. I like the translation there. We know and rely on the love that God has for us. We love because... He first loved us. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now do you see the contrast between worldly love and Christian love there? Worldly love says, I love you because of what you do for me. I love you because of what I want you to do for me. Christian love is after the pattern of the love he has done for us. Do you know why, as Christians, we don't need to love someone because we need what they have to offer us? Why are we not dependent on someone else to love us before we can love them in return? Why are we not dependent on that? Because we're already loved. We don't look at someone and say, I need you to love me. I need you to love me if you expect me to love you back. We don't say that because our need of love has already been met in Christ. It's already full. Our, our tank, our tank of love is already full because Christ has filled it. And because he has filled us with his love, we don't know how to try to manipulate, pressure, cajole someone else to love us in order for us to love them back. We love as Christ loved us. So, if worldly love is horizontal, we would say Christian love is vertical. We take the love that Christ has shown us and we bend it toward people that need our love. We bend it. We take the love he's shown us and we show it to that person who needs our love, whether that person is lovable or not whether that person has something to offer us or not. We love because Christ first loved us. So back to the text now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we ask this next question, and and that is this. Why is Christian love so important? Why is it indispensable? The Apostle Paul is going to give us a series of conditional sentences, If, if sentences, if this, then that. Let's read now. I'll read aloud. You follow along in your Bible. The first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let me just repeat the first verse. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels. hmm. Speaking in tongues seems to have been a big issue at the church in Corinth. Unless we overreact to what Paul is saying here, Paul is not anti-tongues in this passage. If you continue to read the next chapter, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, that he himself spoke in tongues. So Paul himself spoke in tongues. He is not being anti-tongue in this passage. But he's saying, if you think that speaking in tongues makes you somehow, in and of itself, special, that somehow you're more spiritual, you're the with it Christian, and those who don't have that gift are not with it, then you're being unloving. And if you speak in tongues without love, can I cut to the chase? You're just making a lot of noise. You're just making a lot of noise. And he uses this, this figure of speech here of, of, of cymbals and gongs, you know. And when I was reading that, I had this image come to my mind of clank, clank, clank. Isn't that an ugly sound? That's a really ugly sound. But that's the impression Paul's giving here. If you think I'm really cool because I speak in tongues and you're not caring about the people in the church, you're not caring about their welfare, their edification, and he says clank, clank. You're just making ugly noises. And then in verse 2 he says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith to remove mountains, those are pretty impressive gifts, aren't they? (laughs) We could take time and explore each of those, but I think for sake of time, I'll just say every one of those is so impressive. You know, you're supposed to hear about those gifts and stand back and go, Whoa, look at her. Whoa, look at him. But Paul says, if you have these dramatic gifts, these impressive gifts, but you don't have love, he says out of himself, if I had all these gifts and didn't have love, what is my value in the church? You see what he says there? Did you see it? Verse 2? He says, I'm nothing. I'm a big, fat zero. Even if I have these astonishing, breathtaking gifts without love, I don't, I don't amount to anything. I have nothing to contribute to the life of the body. I'm, I'm a big zero. And then in verse 3, he says, if I give away all I have, I deliver up my body to be burned. Hmm. And you wonder, what is he talking about there? And we might, might explore that some, but his point is pretty obvious. He's saying, even if I have some sort of dramatic philanthropy, you know, even if I do something astonishing and how much I give. I even give my body over, you know, in some way. Maybe like the Daniel's three friends in the book of Daniel, you know. If I do something dramatic like that, the fact that I do something dramatic, what if, what if I did that for the wrong reasons? What if I gave away gobs of money? What if I said, I'll die, I'll die! Me! Make, hey, by the way, make sure I have the plaque on the wall of the church after I do this, you know. If I did it for getting attention, it's all about me, I want people to notice me. I want people to remember me with, uh, you know, some sort of great memorial service that's all about me. Paul said, that's not valuable at all. I gain nothing. And he gives us these conditional sentences. If I do even these seemingly dramatic things, stupendous things, and don't have love, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. And so now in verses 4 through 7, The Apostle Paul is going to give us some descriptions, some some properties of Christian love. How our love is shaped by the gospel. He says in verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 4, love is patient. I think in this context, he's not just talking about being patient when your car won't start. I think he's talking about being patient with other people. You know, sometimes you run into people and you say, hopefully quietly, (laughs) she just tries my patience. He just tries my patience. That's the context here. There are some people that are not easy to get along with. And Paul says, if you love someone with Christ-motivated, Christ-shaped love, you're going to be patient. Love is patient. The word here for patience has the idea of enduring offense without retaliation. Now, it's pretty rare for us to read the King James anymore, but I kind of like the King James translation here. It says that the love suffereth long. What a picturesque term. Love suffereth long. You know, that you're willing to endure offenses without retaliation, without striking back. Love is kind. That's the flip side of that coin. It's an act of goodness, of doing good things for people, even if they haven't done something good for you. Even if you're not expecting them to do something good for you. Love is kind that way. Love looks for ways to show... Kindness, Christ's kindness to people who have nothing to offer you. And so now Paul's going to give seven things in quick order of what love is not. And by the way, as we read this next series, I have to think the Apostle Paul had the Corinthian church in particular in mind, but we sure can benefit as well. And he says, Love does not envy. The idea is being jealous. A loving person has, does not have aspirations to be seen as more important than someone else, of being more worthy of praise than someone else. Friends, the competition for honor has no place in the body of Christ. We don't compete with one another to see who's more important, who, who gets the most attention. But true Christ-motivated love, is oriented to the other person. How can I best serve my brothers and sisters in the church even if no one ever notices? Even if no one ever notices. How can I best serve? Love does not envy. Love does not boast. In the word picture here of someone who boasts is a windbag. (laughs) It's someone who's very full of himself always willing to talk about his abilities, his superior way of doing things, his spiritual gifts that are better than your spiritual gifts. And when I read this and seek to evaluate my own heart, I ask myself the painful question, how much do I talk about myself? How much do I talk about myself? How much do I talk about myself so other people will be impressed with me? Am I truly loving this person I'm talking with? Asking questions, drawing them out, seeking to hear their heart and how I might better serve them. What's my orientation in conversation? Love is not arrogant. This word does mean puffed up. In our culture, we often say something about a person like this. He's so full of himself. Or one of the old Puritans, Thomas Watson, said one time about someone, he's so full of himself, he has no room for Christ. I know what a sad comment, so full of himself that there's no room for Christ. You know, here's a person who's puffed up in that way. And I think about that, am I so oriented to myself, my gifts, my spirituality, my importance? Is it hard for me to not be in the forefront? Is it hard for me to think that maybe I might be wrong at times? In the next phrase, he says, love is not rude. And this word has the idea of shaming others, treating others as if they don't matter. And if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, I think it's verse 22, Paul rebuked the wealthier people in the church. Um, The early church often had meals with their communion services. Some churches still practice that, where you have a meal with your communion service, a love feast. And the early church seemed to have done that. And some of the wealthy people, being more people of leisure, could show up early. And what they were doing, apparently, was eating all the food at the love feast. And then when the slaves and the working class finally got off work when the sun went down, they would show up to the church service and there would be no food left. And Paul rebuked the wealthier people that way, who were shaming their poor brothers and sisters. He said, you, do you despise, I'm quoting now, 1 Corinthians 11.22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you? And then he says with great firmness. He says, no, I will not. You don't have to wonder what Paul was thinking at that point, do you? He said, for you people in the church that have means, that you treat the people in the church who don't have means as if somehow they're not important, if somehow they're lesser? It was the same blood that bought you that bought them. Are you despising are you shaming the body of Christ? And I think in our culture, many of us have people that might be socially, culturally below us in authority or in position. I think if some, some of us might have positions of authority at work. We're the boss, we're the foreman, we're the manager. How do you treat the people under your supervision? Do you treat them with Christ-reflecting love? Or do you shame them? Treat them as if they're not as important as you. Or a teacher to her students. To an older sibling, to a younger sibling. You kids that are listening to me right now, do you mock your younger siblings? Do you make your younger siblings feel bad? That they're not as big as you, smart as you, as able as you? That's not Christ reflecting love, is it? Paul says that Christ reflecting love, Christ reflecting love doesn't shame others. Seeks to build them up, doesn't it? Doesn't it? He says next, love does not insist on its own way. Mm, How how long do we need to talk about this one? I want to promote my self-worth. I want to promote my... uh, Self-gratification here. A person who's truly loving isn't seeking his own preferences, his own prominence, but is seeking instead the good of others. Even if it costs him. Even if it costs her, her preferences. How can I honor my brother, my sister in Christ? I'm not going to insist on my own way. And then Paul says, Christ-like love is not irritable. Can I be blunt? People that are pictured, people who are uh, characterized by Christ-like love are not easily ticked off. They're not touching. Because the orientation is not me, but you. How can I honor Christ? How can I encourage you by showing Christ-like love to you the way he has shown it to me? Now, if that's your orientation in life, if you're always thinking, how can I honor Christ by, by benefiting his people? How can I honor Christ by showing his love to this person? then you're not going to be a touchy person you're not going to get easily ticked off love is not resentful or some of you have the NIV love keeps no record of wrong hmm a loving person doesn't dwell on the offenses of other people do you, do you know what she did to me do you know all the times he said such and such to me as if we keep some sort of file you know i want to keep i want to keep some file of all the offenses she's committed against me. I want to keep a file of all the offenses he's committed against me. And Paul's saying, Christian love, Christ-reflecting love doesn't do that. It doesn't keep a record of wrong. You know, when I think of that quality of love, you know where my mind goes? Would Would I want the Lord to treat me that way? Would you want the Lord to treat you that way? Do you, do, you, do you want him to keep a file on you? Marking down all of your offenses? One of, one, of the most, one of the most astonishingly encouraging verses in the Bible, in my opinion, is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. What the apostle Paul says, There is now therefore, some of you know this verse, No condemnation. To those that are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that, my friends, good news? I mean, isn't that glorious news that there's no condemnation over my head? Oh, I deserve condemnation. I've earned condemnation. I've offended the holy God who made me, time and time and time again. Where did, where did my condemnation go? It was poured out on Christ. That day He hung on the cross. The condemnation that I earned, was poured out upon my innocent Savior. In my place, condemned, he stood. And now there is, therefore, because of Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation over my head. My Christian friend, why would we treat a brother or sister in Christ as if there is condemnation over his head, as if there is condemnation over her head? Can we not, should we not, by the power of the Spirit, treat our brothers and sisters the way Christ has treated us? He keeps no record of my wrong. Can I not treat my brother, my sister, without keeping some file of all of his offenses, of all of her offenses, that we love even as he loved us? Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices. With the truth. There's twins there, isn't there? One's positive, one's negative. The true love, Christian love, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. Christ reflecting love doesn't find joy in digging out the details of other people's faults, somehow gloating when someone else goes down. Love to hear gossip about the failures of other people. Christ like love doesn't go there. What's the alternative? Rejoicing in the truth. Celebrating the good in other people. And I tell you, friends, one thing I want to learn more, even at this stage in my life, I want to keep learning. I want to learn more and more. What it means to celebrate God's grace, God's goodness in the lives of other people. And to be ready, willing, taking initiative to point that out. That when I'm with my brother my sister in Christ, whether it's my wife or one of my kids or grandkids or a friend and one of you, that when I see God's grace in your life, I'm willing to say, you know, I've seen how God's given you such a generous heart. He's been so good to you to give you a heart that's generous. And I just thank God for you that he's given you such generosity. And we're pointing that out. We're celebrating the goodness that God has implanted in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're making a point of commenting on his goodness, his grace in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We're rejoicing in those things. And then in verse 7, he does this quick staccato, all these properties of love. Verse 7, love bears all things. I think the NIV is love always protects. It's the idea of covering or enduring did your parents say to you when you were a kid, did your parents say to you what my parents said to me? <laughs> I can still hear my mother decades ago saying to me and my siblings, if you don't have something nice to say, maybe your parents read the same book my parents did. <laughs> if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. I mean, it, it that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And I think that's what Paul is saying here, even in this uh, descriptor of love, when he says love bears all things. Um, if you don't have something nice to say, why, why say anything at all? Um, 1 Peter eight is memorable. Those of you raising young children, this is an easy verse to teach to your kids. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> love covers a multitude of sins. And when you and I live with one another all, we realize that those people we're living with, living around, have faults. So we can cover them. We don't need to keep pointing them out. Why would I treat others in a way that's different than the way Christ has treated me? Love believes all things. That it doesn't mean you have to be gullible, but it does mean you don't need to be cynical. Why be cynical? You know, someone does something good and we question the motive. Yeah, I bet he did that because of it. You know, we named something ugly, you know. Uh, she said that, but I bet she really meant to say, you, you know that cynicism? That doesn't honor Christ. That doesn't reflect Christ. Why, why don't we just instead to assume the best in someone else? Even if someone isn't being very kind, you know, assume the best. Maybe they had a hard day. You know, maybe they're up all night with a baby or something, you know, and we, we assume the best. That, I think that's the idea, or love believes all things. And then Paul says love hopes all things. You know, we don't need to write off people. It's so easy for us sometimes to write people off He's never going to change. This past week in our life group, I wasn't planning on sharing this story, but I think I will. This last week in our life group gathering, we were praying with our group about a relative of someone in our group who's addicted to drugs. And if you've been around people addicted to drugs, it's kind of easy to assume it's never going to change. But one of the ladies in our life group prayed for that drug-addicted person with such faith, such hope that I was caught off guard. I thought, why am I not praying that way for him? Doesn't Christ change people? Is he not able to change people? Does grace not conquer? Does grace not conquer evil? Free people from their addiction?" And cannot I pray for that person? Not with faith in him, but with faith in Christ. Christ, you are able. You are able to break the chains of sin and addiction in this person's life. I am fully confident of your sovereign grace that you can come with your long arm of salvation and that we pray and we think and we act and we talk in that way. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. We don't need to bail on relationships just when we're going through rough times. We don't need to bail. Aren't we thankful that Christ hasn't bailed on us? When we're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ in our family context, in our life group, in our church as a whole, when we see a brother or sister struggling or failing, we don't need to bail. In our weddings, the old-fashioned vows that I think are worthy of repeating in our day is for better or for worse, for better or for worse. Now on your wedding day, those of us who were married, many of us said those vows. And we had no idea how hard it might get, but we vowed better or worse. And I think those vows, in a sense, can be said in our Christian relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not going to bail on you. When you trip up and fall, I'm not going to bail on you when you get ugly with me. I'm going to stick with you. I'm going to love you. You, you. you can't get rid of me because Christ hasn't gotten rid of me. I'm with you. I'm for you. I want to see God's grace get a grip on your life. So let's look back on this passage. How can I live a life of love? How can that life of love motivate and shape specifically the use of my gifts in the church? Let's remember what's underlying this whole passage. Underlying this whole passage is a distinctive view of love. Worldly love is purely horizontal. I love you because of what I see as your lovability. I love you because of what I think you give me or could give me or should give me. Christian love says, I love you as Christ has loved me. I love you because Christ has loved me. My love for you, whether you're my husband, my wife, my child, my parent, my sibling, my friend, my life group member, my fellow church member, my love for you is not dependent on you. My love for you is not based on you. My love for you is not somehow shaped by my impression of you. My love for you is shaped by the love Christ has for me. My love for you is motivated by the the love Christ has already shown for me at the cross. And in that way, we love each other with this kind of love that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. I want to do something with you here as we draw this to a close. I want you to join me in saying this passage out loud, at least verses 4 through 7. So if we put it up on the screen, um, why don't we read this out loud? This is 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Join me in saying it out loud, but then don't get ready to leave, because I want you to do something else yet, too, okay? <laughs> out loud with me, please. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, Hopes all things, endures all things. What I'm going to ask you to do next is risky, and I know that. And if you're not comfortable with doing this out loud, can I at least ask you to do it silently? We're going to read through this passage again. And this time, where the word love is stated or assumed, I would like you to say your own name. And I'm going to say mine. So you're going to hear a little bit of cacophony here. You're going to hear different names around you. But you focus on your heart. You focus on your words. So when you see a blank, that's where you insert your name. That's where I insert my name. If you care to join me aloud, please. Larry is patient and kind. Larry does not be or boast. Larry is not arrogant or rude. Larry does not insist on his own way. Larry is not irritable or resentful. Larry does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Larry bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Did that make anybody else uncomfortable? It is kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? You know why? Because inside of us we think, I can't do that on my own. And that's exactly the point but we're not on our own. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, he has not left us orphans, he has given us this Holy Spirit. Some of you know what Paul said to the Galatian churches. He said, the the fruit of the Spirit is... That's a first one, isn't it? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Behind this whole passage is this understanding, this foundational understanding that... It is the Holy Spirit who not only gives gifts, but it is the Holy Spirit who empowers us to demonstrate those gifts, to apply those gifts, to use those gifts in a way that honors him. D.A. Carson, who was here at our church not too many months ago, wrote this. and I'm going to read it out loud to you. I think we have a slide of it if you want to follow along. Dr. Carson said, The presence of such love is an infallible test of the Spirit's presence. The various spiritual gifts, as important as they are, and as highly as Paul values them, can all be duplicated by pagans. This quality of love cannot be. That is why Jesus himself declares it to be the distinguishing characteristic of his followers. For it is this quality of love that he proposes when he declares, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why is 1 Corinthians 13 between 12 and 14? It is because if we think of gifts without thinking about the motivation behind it, if we think of gifts without the shaping of love behind it, then we might be no different than the non-Christians around us. But if the Holy Spirit truly indwells us individually and as a church, if the Holy Spirit's truly indwelling us, empowering us, shaping us, motivating us to use our gifts in love, we are demonstrating, we are manifesting the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not interrupting his conversation, his discourse on gifts by talking about love. He's saying, using your gifts, demonstrating your gifts in love, is a reflection that the Holy Spirit is there, he's present among you, he's present in you, and he is shaping you, motivating you to demonstrate him as you serve one another. We read the last verse of chapter 12, didn't we? I will show you a still more excellent way. Did you know that's one bookend? Do you know there's another bookend? Look at the beginning of chapter 14. There's another bookend. It says, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. (laughs) Pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Paul's not contrasting gifts and love. He's saying, no, have both. Pursue love, desire the gifts. And in the coming weeks, we're going to hear from Pastor Mark as he teaches us more about these spiritual gifts. I'm looking forward to that. Some of you are here today without Christ. And you hear a passage like this and you realize your helplessness, your hopelessness. You cannot love others this way without the indwelling Holy Spirit. You need the saving work of Jesus Christ to come and give you a new heart and to give you his Holy Spirit. So I encourage you to turn to him today. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes to lead us in a closing song. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, your spirit has been tricking us today, showing us our dependence on you And Lord, we revel in your grace, we rely on your love, and Lord, as a fellow member of this church, Lord, I would ask that you would work in our church powerfully, that when we seek to use our gifts, we would do so in a way that would demonstrate that we've been gripped by your love, and therefore we love one another in ways that honor you. So come, have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.